Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. episode 116. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. No. What? I said no. Did you hear me? I said no, it is not true. Contrary to popular belief, as I said, there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist, allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out to find the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So, yeah. Who are we talking about today, Beth? Well, today we're talking about Eugene Victor Britt, an African-American serial killer and rapist. He killed somewhere around 11 people in Gary and Portage, Indiana, between May and September 1995. Ooh, sounds juicy. Now, before we get into it, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm glad to be back. We had a nice little break, uh, got to do some things we needed to do, but I'm happy to be back. How about you? Hooray! Same. Yeah. yeah g- g- glad to be back from the break. Um, vac- the vaccines are coming for yep. us. Yeah. I uh, get my second one tomorrow. Hallelujah. Yeah. I'm so excited for you. Praise God. And uh, I, you know, I keep looking, but uh, no cigars. Nothing Not yet. yet. None, none are available yet. But yeah. I am happy to be back from this little break we had. And I'm looking forward to sort of improving the show, taking us to the next level and seeing where we go. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's see. Before we get into it, let's uh, get into some listener letters. Here we go. Well, hello, angels. Thank you. 
Oh, I just love that sound. And Me Beth, too. Tell us what's in that bag. Well, we got an email from Mark regarding the Christopher Dorner case in the LAPD. Mm. And he said, Dear Wendy and Beth, let me start off with, I love your show. I do have a concern that I noticed again last week listening to your episode about Eamon Presley. I mentioned it because the first time I heard it was when you did the story on Christopher Dorner. What's interesting to me is that you described both as narcissists, which they both were, but it appeared that some blame was put on police. Full disclosure, I was a deputy sheriff for 32 years. I am a first-generation law enforcement officer, as is my wife, who I met while at work, was also a deputy for 31 years. And I cut out some of this because it got a little long, but uh, he is also a black man. Yes. Our sons are both in law enforcement. One followed us onto the sheriff's department, and our older son is an LAPD officer. I am not blind to the fact that law enforcement has many issues in dealing with BIPOC. I was involved in several studies and units directed at educating the members of my department. I also had a few run-ins with some seriously fucked up racists during my tenure. I can only imagine. Ah, same. Yeah. Yeah. I am writing this letter not to protect the racists in my department, the LAPD, or any other law enforcement agency, because I want more than anything to illuminate and separate bad cops from whatever agency they work on. The purpose of this is to add some information to the Christopher Dorner case, which you may not have known. Dorner's case I'm more familiar with because it affected me personally, and I know some of the people involved. I followed the case very closely. I had a peripheral acquaintance with Captain Randall Kwan. He lives in my town, and we've crossed paths and chatted a few times. I did not know he was Monica's father, though, until after she was murdered. She was a very close friend of my son's from high school, and he told us it was her killed in a shooting that was well-publicized. Her fiancé, Keith Lawrence, whom I did not know, was the police trainee of another friend's son. The training officer was also in the same high school class and an acquaintance of my son. Finally, the police officers he attacked in Riverside, the one who was maimed but survived, just happened Mm. to to be the son of a deputy I worked with. So, wow, wow, he's got a lot of connections. Holy moly, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Dorner claimed in his manifesto he was getting back at the LAPD and some of its members because of the rampant racism he faced while going through training. Does the LAPD have a history of racism? Oh, good Lord, yes. (laughs) I'm glad somebody said it. (laughs) But obviously, Dorner had his internal demons. Because of his narcissism, he believed he was targeted and that his training deficiencies were not his fault. And and I I agree with Mark here. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Then, yeah, that narcissism thing is a big factor. Yeah. Some missed the fact, and I don't remember if you covered that Dorner's trigger was that he was discharged from the U.S. Navy. When you are enlisted or commissioned in the military, you receive a few promotions automatically, or as they come in a timeline, once you test for your next step, if you are passed over at a particular rank two times, you have reached your terminal rank and therefore will have to discharge when your commitment is up. I didn't know that. Yeah, like game game over in the video yeah. game. Yeah. And what if I put in more coins? Can I <laughs> nope. get more lives? You no. Don't, you don't get any more coins. Shit. <laughs> 
Dorner was deemed ineligible for 03 and discharged, after which he became unhinged, wrote his manifesto listing members of the Navy, the LAPD, and even his grade school principal, claiming all were racist and blaming all of them for his inadequacies and vowing revenge. This is when he went on his murder spree. Blaming Randall Kwan because he didn't get his job back. Ironic, because Randall Kwan was the attorney advocating for Dorner to get his job back. Very ironic. Yes. Cue Alanis Morissette song. (laughs) (laughs) Dorner was discharged from LAPD because he did not pass his training probationary period. I'll be the first to admit that training is hard, almost as hard as the academy is, because lots of things are happening fast and the learning curve is steep. But it's Mm -hmm. not impossible. I'm not convinced his failings were because the whole department is racist. Again, does the LAPD have racist members? Sure. But so does Kroger, Sears, Macy's, and Dent industry for that matter both of you know we (laughs) both of you know we have to deal with it and navigate those waters keep up the good work so thank you mark uh we really appreciate your your uh perspective yes we do and i am going to give you mark some hip-hop air horns yeah thank you so much Thank you very much. Yeah, when he said, uh, so does Kroger, Sears, and Macy's in dentistry, my wig was completely snatched off. <laughs> because that's a good reminder. It is everywhere. The yeah. only problem is Kroger, Sears, Macy's, and your dentist can't kill you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they, they could, but they'd get in trouble. And, they, and right. the police don't necessarily get in trouble for killing you. <laughs> Exactly. Yes. But that is a true fact. It is everywhere and not, you know, people experience racism every single day since the beginning of time, I essentially. Right. Um, And not everybody turns into a murderous murderer, killer person. (laughs) Uh, So so there's that. Right. Um, but yeah, we s- definitely appreciate your perspective, Mark. Yes. Uh, yes big ups to you. you. Big ups. Yep. <laughs> uh, we uh, we also got some new patrons, patrons and Kofi supporters. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to thank real quick um, in case I start singing your tunes and you're like, who the fuck was that for? So <laughs> Kirsten, thank you. Yvonne D and Hadina J and Katharson. So here are your tunes. Okay. Big bag, Kirsten out the Bentley, Bentiaga, man, Balenciaga, Barty back, and all these pods is fucked. If it's up, then it's up, then it's up, then it's stuck. If it's up, then it's up, then it's up, then it's stuck. And I hope you like that, Kirsten. Uh, Yvonne D. All right. Listen. I'm Yvonne. I'm Yvonne. I'm Yvonne. Tell me who's going to take me off. Take me off. Take me off. Pardon high, leather good, keep me trill, that's what's good. Anyway, that's my Beyonce when Beyonce raps during the homecoming. And it's one of those tunes I like to do, listen to to get hype. So thank you, Yvonne. And this one's for Hadina. Hadina J. Whoa, what's Hadina got to do? Got to do with it. What's Hadina? But a second-hand emotion. Who needs Hadina when a pod can be broken? <laughs> I hope you like that. And then, uh, Catharsin, this is for you. Strumming my pain with his murder. Singing my pod with his words. 
Killing me softly, Cathar son. Killing me softly, Cathar son. Telling my whole life, Cathar son, killing me softly. And hip hop air horns for everybody. Woo! Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Well, that was fun. We can't thank you all enough. And uh, before we take a break, we're going to get into a little bit of a discussion here, a race discussion. We haven't done it in a while. Yeah. We just like to say that this is a podcast about true crime and people of color. True crime can be difficult to talk and hear about, and so can race uh, and other ills of society. But they're just part of the world that we live in, and we're global citizens, and we, everybody gets a right to talk about this stuff. You can't uh, fix it if you don't face it. And that starts with conversations. Right. And we want this to be a safe space where we can have discussions about all of the things. You know, we're all learning all the time. And sometimes we make mistakes, but we just got to cop to it, learn from it, and keep it moving on our collective quest to be our best sexy selves. Amen. I yeah. feel like I deserve a hip hop air horn for working on being my best sexy yeah. self. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give it yeah, to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You too. That was for you too, boo. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> and we welcome our listeners to be a part of the conversation on Facebook or Twitter at Fruit Loops Pod or email us at Fruit Loops Pod at gmail.com. That's right. So we're going to take a quick break and get into the story when we come back. A duck blind on Real Foot Lake in northwestern Tennessee becomes the unlikely site of a double homicide. Then the suspect's body is discovered floating in the murky waters nearby to the scene of the crime. Maya Miliette goes missing from Chola Vista after a fight with her husband, leading friends and family to believe he might be involved. Tune in to Murder, Murder News, The Listen Edition every Friday for the biggest true crime cases making headlines each week. Subscribe to Murder, Murder News, The Listen Edition, wherever you listen to podcasts. episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour a day? Hmm. Spend more time with your kids? Go to the hmm. gym? Hmm. Work on a hobby? Take a nap? <laughs> Can you do all those things in 60 minutes? Just kidding. <laughs> you know, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. Yeah. But what we do with that time, we don't always know. But the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what it is. And therapy can help you figure that out. Find what matters to you most and make it a priority so that you can find the time to do more of it. Yeah. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for everyone. Mm -hmm. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. And I've been in and out of therapy most of my life. Same. And it has had such a positive influence on my life that I honestly do not know who I would be without therapy. And I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know either. <laughs> Listen, Bev and I have both used BetterHelp. Yeah. And we love it. And if you are thinking of starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com fruit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. 
on our podcast, Disturbed Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. We're back from our brizzy break. All right, Beth, remind us who is our subject today. Today we're talking about Eugene Victor Britt, who killed at least seven people but confessed to the murders of 11. His victims were white, black, and Latinx, large and small. They ranged in age from 8 to 51 and included sex workers and one man. He killed at random whoever he came across during his bicycle rides. All right, so we're going to get into some stats, y'all. <laughs> okay, so Eugene Victor Britt was born on November 4th, 1957. He is an African-American serial killer, and judging by his date of birth and the fact that this took place in Gary, Indiana, I'm guessing he's a great migration baby. Either his parents were in- involved or... Maybe they moved shortly after having him. Um, anyway, he weighed 240 pounds and stood six feet, one inches tall. He was a large man. He had seven to, uh, t- I believe he confessed to killing 11 people and also confessed to raping five people. Uh, his MO was to sneak up on his victims, snatch them by the throat, and drag them into a private second location. Uh, his victims, let's speak their names, rest in power queens and kings and royalty alike, 46-year-old Arlinda Smith, 32-year-old Sarah Harrington, 8-year-old Sarah Paulson, 14-year-old Nikita Moore, 24-year-old Tanya Dunlap, 41-year-old Maxine Walker, 51-year-old Betty Askew, 29-year-old Precious McNeil, 27-year-old Michelle Burns, 41-year-old Deborah McHenry. And there are some victims that we know nothing about, including a male victim. Yeah. Uh, and I believe there is an assault and rape victim who's 13 years old. Uh, and to top off the stats section, his crimes took place from May to September of 1995 in Indiana, and he was arrested on November 3rd, 1995. Oh, shoot, one day before his birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Eugene. Yeah. <laughs> Let me check my give-a-shit meter. I It's very low, and uh, this man was sentenced to hundreds of years in prison. I don't think the number matters. He's just going to be there for a long time yeah. and is there to this day. Thank goodness. Uh, so, <laughs> yes, indeedy. So, Beth, let's dive into the setting. Take us there. Yeah, the setting is Gary and Portage, Indiana. 
the major tribes in the Indiana Territory were the Miamis, the Delawares, the Shawnee, and the Potawatomis. Most of these groups had actually been pushed into the area from the east due to European invasion. Then, as a result of increased white settlement in central and northern Indiana and pressure by the United States, Indiana was virtually cleared. Uh, it's such a benign word. Cleared of its yeah. Native American population it's clear, by eighteen. 18- move in. <laughs> they just, they just dis- they just disappeared. And yeah. now we get yeah, all this land. What happened to them? Ooh, America. <laughs> uh, only a generation after being opened to settlement by white Easterners. The only Native Americans left were the survivors of the original Native families. However, even the titles to their lands were eventually extinguished as white people continued expanding into the area. We're like a cancer. We're like a what? Cancer, white people. <laughs> yeah, and, and not a cancer. And it's it's really interesting if you look at what has happened to groups who've been marginalized since the beginning of sort of Western uh, colonization. There is a, always, always a return to grouping, um, walling people off, uh, right, or separating them from us, right? right. They uh, excluded and killed um, Native Americans. Uh, Black people were um, uh, isolated to plantations and the bondage of slavery. Um, Immigrants, you know, protect the borders at all costs. All that stuff is just this weird mentality of... I don't know. Just wanting everything and of... not wanting to anybody else to to have it, I guess. But what's what's the there's a word for that manifest destiny? Yeah. That's what it is. People felt like they needed to conquer the West. Yeah, needed to conquer the West or deserve to. It's, right, it's right. A, a widely held cultural belief in the United States that American settlers were destined to expand yes, across destined. North America. Hence manifest destiny, yes. Yeah. And if you ask me, it's a whole bunch of fuckery. Yeah. It, it was a way to get people to take over the country. Yes. And, and um, the the idea, it's still recurrent today, that idea in people's minds that I'm in, enti- I'm entitled yeah. to this. Yeah. Um, whatever. Whatever um, it is. Yeah. Right, exactly. So uh, Gary, Indiana, back to the story. Gary, Indiana is located at the bottom of Lake Michigan, just about 25 miles uh, from downtown Chicago. Gary, Indiana is famous for being the birthplace of Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5. ABC, it's true crime for me. Uh, So the city was home to a fast growing population of European immigrants. And by the 1920s, Southern black people and immigrants from Mexico as well. The city's population was 55,000 in 1920 and grew to 100,000 by 1930. By then, black people made up about 18 percent of the population. Gary, Indiana is a stop on the Great Migration. We haven't mentioned it in a while, but it was a phenomena in American history that took place from the mid-1910s to the 1970s, in which over 6 million African-American immigrants or refugees fled racial terrorism, violence, and economic strife for refuge in the northern United States. Yeah, this is kind of a tangent, but I just watched the Billie Holiday uh-huh. um, uh, movie, right? And uh, the government was like, "Oh, it, she, she, we're gonna get her because she won't stop singing that song about yeah. lynching. Yeah, how dare she sing that song? She's gonna create an uprising. <laughs> People are gonna believe they have all these rights." But it was like, 
why are you mad about this woman just singing about it? Yeah, and why don't you what? get mad no- about the lynchings? Yeah, nobody's going to do anything about the lynching yeah. part? Okay. Yeah. Okay, America. A little I fucked see you. up. <laughs> Very much so. So, um, where are they? throughout the first half of the century, Gary was a testing ground for the assimilation and Americanization of its European immigrants. There was a clear goal to Americanize immigrant children and prepare them for industrial work. At the time, the steel industry in Gary was booming. However, Black people and Mexicans were marginalized and isolated behind powerful walls of discrimination, segregation, and racism. The Great Depression deeply affected the city and the entire world, frankly, from 1929 through the 1930s. In 1933, Franklin D. Roosevelt enacted the New Deal, which was a series of programs, public work projects, financial reforms, and regulations to help lift the United States out of the Depression. And that's good. And I know when people hear about the New Deal, they think, great, FDR pulled America out of the Depression. Whee! Uh, and what a guy. Uh, but, you know, no one's perfect and policy isn't either. Um, the New Deal was not great, particularly for black people and BIPOC people. For example, uh, the 1933 Agricultural Adjustment Act, uh, which drove many black farmers uh, from their land, uh, was enacted. And um, certain industry stack sectors were excluded from the Recovery Act provisions, uh, industries that uh happen to have high numbers of black workers, like in agriculture and domestic labor. So those those people who worked in those industries couldn't take advantage of wow. um, benefits of the New Deal. Also, the 1935 Social Security Act did not provide age-old pensions for farm and domestic wow. workers. So um, that is not great. Yeah, I did not know that. Hey, man, Culture Corner. That's what, it, that's what, it's, that's what it's here for. I miss that Culture Corner. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, then World War II happened, uh, which helped pull the city out of the Great Depression. Uh, but racial segregation and strife, labor problems in steel, industrial pollution, and political corruption earned the city a national reputation as a troubled town. White flight to the suburbs began in the 1960s and continued well into the 90s. White businesses fled to the suburbs as well. By 1930, African Americans made up 18% of the population. In 1950, it was 29%, and in 1970, it was 53%. By the 1990s, the Black population was over 80%. In my mind, that sounds great. A place where we don't have to worry about white supremacy. (laughs) White fuckery. (laughs) Wow! There's no Karens. I can't see a Karen for miles. Uh, (laughs) So, Gary has been described as a decaying former steel boom town. And as with many Rust Belt cities, it suffers from unemployment, decaying infrastructure, and low literacy and educational attainment levels. It is estimated that the nearly one-third of all houses in the city are unoccupied or abandoned. And in 1993, Gary was labeled the nation's murder capital. Wow. Yeah. Portage is a smaller suburb located next door and just southeast of Gary. According to the 2000 census, there were about 33,500 people living in Portage. The racial makeup of that city was about 93% white. So very, very different. Very different and also odd, considering, again, it used to be 100% indigenous. Yeah. (laughs) So... (laughs)
24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Hi, podcast listeners. I'm Carol Costello, a former CNN anchor and national correspondent. This January, I'm launching a podcast about one of the first cases I ever covered as a journalist. It's one that stuck with me all of these years, the one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. It's a true crime series about an amazing woman named Phyllis Cottle who defied torture and death and brought a fierce rage to the quest to find her attacker. Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. Now we are going to get into Brit's early life. Um, well, uh, we don't know a whole lot about his early life. Uh, we do know that uh, Eugene uh, Victor Britt, he was born November 4th in Gary, Indiana in 1957. And as a boy, he was abused by his father and witnessed his father's continual abuse of his mother. Unable to stand the abuse, he left home and school when he was 14. Britt reportedly had some struggles with alcohol and drugs. He later claimed that he heard voices and that he committed the murders on the orders from voices in his head, what he referred to as, quote, the thing. I just wish I had, I knew more about this thing. Yeah. And where is it? How do I avoid it? Uh, so now we're going to get into the timeline. So... In April of 1978, when Britt was 21 years old, he stalked a high school student who was walking home from school. He pulled her to the ground, dragged her to a remote wooded area, and raped her repeatedly. Before he left, he pulled a distinctive gold ring off of her finger. The girl went to police, but investigators were unable to identify a suspect. Until two weeks later, when the girl was in a car at a gas station and she saw her gold ring on the station attendant's pink that attendant was Eugene Britt. Oh boy, I'm telling everybody. I'm telling on you. Uh, Britt was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Uh, when Britt entered state prison in 1979, he was tested and found to be intellectually challenged. Uh, I believe sources use the R word. Um, and uh, not cool. Uh, in 1993, because of good behavior, Britt was released after serving only half of his sentence and he was 35. Also, another culture corner. Um we might look down upon some of the sources uh, that reported things that happened back in the day. 
But uh, as we said at the beginning of this episode, we are learning all the time and doing our best to be our best sexy selves. And you sort of have to, with in some instances, not with slavery, because everybody knew that shit was wrong. <laughs> and everybody knew Jim Crow was wrong. But as far as language, uh, describing him as intellectually challenged, um, at the time, maybe there wasn't, they didn't know, right? They didn't have that term. Exactly. So uh, there's there's that. I'm done now. All right. Go ahead, Beth. <laughs> After his release, he began working as a janitor at an apartment complex and later took a job at a Hardee's on the Indiana Tollway. He lived in a shelter for unhoused people in Gary. His only mode of transportation was his blue 10-speed bike, which he would ride back and forth to work. He also liked to ride his bicycle around Gary's east side and the Miller Beach area along Lake Michigan. And when he felt the urge, he would ride his bike around Gary, trolling for victims. And from May to September 1995, a series of rapes and murders occurred in the Gary area. Britt reportedly said he killed in part because, quote, the thing, end quote, told him to do it. On May 2nd, 1995, Britt approached 41-year-old Maxine Walker as she was walking and asked what she was doing. He later said he could tell Walker sensed something was wrong, so he grabbed her and they fell into a weeded area. Britt kept his hands around her neck so she couldn't scream, dragged her into a wooded area, and raped her twice as he strangled her. He said he then dragged her body into a field and left it there. On May 9th, 1995, the body of Arlinda Smith, 46, was found. The very same day, a 13-year-old girl was walking home along Clay Street in Gary at about 8.30 p.m. when Britt grabbed her from behind, threw her to the ground, and choked her until she lost consciousness. He then dragged her up a hill, and when she regained consciousness, he told her he would kill her if she screamed or if she looked at him. After raping her, he went through her purse and told her he had her address book and photos. He said that he would remember her face, and if he ever heard anything about the rape, he would kill her. By the way, I was just thinking, dragged her uphill? Yeah. I mean, this guy must have been strong. super strong. Yeah. Then he instructed her to count to 50 and took off. Tag, you're it. I like it playing hide and seek. Uh, and then when she made it home, the girl told her mother what happened. And then uh, she was taken to the hospital. Britt's DNA was later matched to samples that were collected from the victim. And uh, she's a hero for, for going Absolutely. to her mom and telling her what happened. Because that uh, having somebody have your address book and photos and saying they would kill you. If you right. told anybody and she mm -hmm. she went ahead and told anyway. Yeah, she's a hero. Yeah. And this girl was a minor. Thirteen. Right? So we don't yeah. we don't know her name, but being brave enough at that age to do to, that, yeah. To do that is incredible. And you know what? I'm gonna do this. Call it inappropriate. I don't give a shit. Yeah. Hip hop air horns to her. Yeah, yep. absolutely. On May 16th, the body of Sarah Harrington, 32, was found in a wooded area near Lake Michigan. Sarah, who was from Lake Station, which is located in between Gary and Portage, had been reported missing earlier in the year. Initially, her death was ruled to be by natural causes, even though her pants were off and her shirt was up around her neck. What? Come again? <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe the investigators were blind. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I think they just didn't uh, want to do the paperwork. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, I, right. The paperwork involved. Uh, the investigation, Mark. all that stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so on June 16th, 1995, 14-year-old Nikita Moore disappeared. Britt had abducted the girl as she walked down a sidewalk, dragged her to the side of the of a, of a house, and raped her twice while holding his hand over her mouth. Nikita pleaded for her life before Britt strangled her to death. Her body was found on June 24th in a weeded area near an abandoned house. Her body was so decomposed, her cause of death could not be determined and at, at first I was like, what? Cause of de- decomposed beyond recognition or cause of death. But it was the summertime. Right. West. Yeah. Lots yeah. of humidity and heat. And so. bugs and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. In July of 1995, Deborah McHenry, 41, was assaulted. When she was a child, the McHenry family actually lived next door to the Brit family. And as children, she, her brother, and three sisters would play with Brit and his siblings. No. Yeah. Not play together. Yep, Come on. They did. In 1987, Deborah, or Debbie as her family members called her, was diagnosed with a life-threatening brain tumor and underwent surgery to remove it. Afterwards, she was never quite the same. So it took her from 30 years old to 10 years old, and it affected her thinking, as per her brother Donald. Uh, he added that the family closed ranks after Debbie's surgery to help her and protect her. After the surgery, Debbie wasn't able to return to work, so she concentrated on raising her two daughters. And she was described by her family as a homebody and like a lamb. On July 17, 1995, Debbie went to pick up her food stamps and social security check. Debbie then stopped at her aunt's house in Gary to visit and hang out. Her brother Donald was also there. The group had a few drinks and talked for a while. Later, Debbie decided she wanted to go shopping, so Donald took her to a nearby store. On the way home, Debbie told her brother to let her off at 25th and Broadway so she could meet up with a friend. That was the last time he saw her. She was supposed to go back to their aunt's house, but she never showed up. According to Britt, as Debbie walked down the street, he grabbed her by the neck and dragged her into a grassy area on the side of the house. Because she was struggling, Britt put his hands around her neck while he raped her and then strangled her when he saw her looking at his face. Afterward, he dragged her body behind the house and threw her clothing in a garbage can nearby. Early the next morning on July 18th, a man found Deborah's partially clothed body lying in a weedy area behind a house just about a mile away from where Nikita Moore had been found. Police were able to identify her through a Medalert necklace she wore for epilepsy. On July 18th, two women walked out of a Lake Station courtroom. Tanya Dunlap, 24, and her friend Wanda Klein. Tanya and Wanda had been arrested together on June 14th at a truck stop in Lake Station, and they were charged with criminal trespassing. Tanya spent most of her time in and around Gary. There, she lived a transient lifestyle, going from address to address with other folks who also survived on the streets and smoked crack cocaine. Wanda said Tanya was known around Gary as, quote, cutie pie, end quote. She did sex work as a means to survive and fund her drug habit. Wanda and Tanya spent two nights in jail, two nights that Wanda Klein said changed her life. Quote, it scared me. That was it. I started a new life, unquote. She checked into a rehab center and never saw her friend Tanya again. 
For Tanya's part, after she left the courthouse, she saw Britt riding by on his bike and flagged him down. She started a conversation with him, telling Britt that she wanted something to smoke. Britt told her he had marijuana and talked her into going behind a building with him. But he had no marijuana, and when she discovered this, she tried to run. Britt grabbed her by the neck and threw her into the weeds. He then threw her deeper into the wooded area where he raped her three times and strangled her. Um, just really sad that the, the divergence of the two outcomes for both of those women, yeah. right? One yeah. ended up in rehab and unfortunately one Was lost murdered. her life. Yeah, the same mm-hmm. day. Yeah. Yeah. On August 13th, 1995, the body of Michelle Burns, 27, was discovered in a grassy field behind a building, two miles east of where Debbie McHenry had been found. Britt had grabbed Burns from the street and carried her to a grassy area near a building where he raped her. He strangled Burns when she told him she would never forget his face. At about 11 a.m. on August 22nd, 1995, Britt was at work at the Hardy's restaurant. He was apparently screwing around instead of working, and the manager sent him home after he squirted water at another employee. Britt dawdled on his bicycle in the parking lot until a security guard ordered him to leave. Britt eventually pedaled off, still wearing his blue and green polyester uniform. Some people really knock the polyester fabric. <laughs> I am a huge fan of it. You like polyester? I, just, I love it. I mean, it just feels so um like sturdy yeah. of a material. Never you never wrinkles. What? Yeah. I don't have to iron anything. The only problem I have with it is it like uh, the static electricity. Mm, Sometimes okay. it like sticks together. Okay. Okay. That's something I, I, I don't, don't know if care you know about. this about me. I don't care about a lot of things. I'm really just trying to survive and make it through the day. <laughs> and uh, don't, those don't care about just that. don't have, have never bothered me. <laughs> static, static. Ooh. Uh, so uh, that day was the last day of summer break. And little eight-year-old Sarah Paulson, who was being babysat by her older brother while her mom was at work, and I believe her dad was out of town, took off on her bike to find frogs. The next day, she was to start second grade, and she was very excited. I can only imagine. Um, my kids just got back or got back to in-person school, and the excitement yeah. is through the roof. I can just only um, I picture yeah. this girl. Um, she had gotten the teacher she wanted, and she'd gotten the haircut just so she could put it in a ponytail by herself. Yeah, it's so cute, and it makes me so yeah. sad. Yeah, cute and really devastating. Yeah. Her mother, Patty Paulson, described her as independent and a tomboy who could hold her own with her two older brothers, Jason and Dan. She liked catching bugs and frogs, but she also loved the color pink. She liked to wear pink shirts or pink earrings or a pink bow in her hair. It sounds adorable. It does. Uh So Sarah didn't come home from her bike ride that morning. A neighbor walking her dog found the little girl face down in the woods under a pine tree near the church across the street from Paulson's home. She had been raped and strangled. And can you imagine? I mean, you would think living across the street from a church would be a safe Very safe. Yeah, you would think so. A a nice neighborhood, church across the street. Yeah. 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 Neighbors who are paying attention. Right. Yeah. 
On Paulson's clothes and beneath her fingernails, police found tiny blue and green polyester fibers. Witnesses told police they saw a large man riding a bicycle near the crime scene, but that was just one of the many leads that police had. On September 2, 1995, the body of Betty Askew, 51, was discovered in a weedy lot two houses away from where she lived. Britt had started talking to Askew as she was walking through an alley. She sensed something was wrong and started screaming. He grabbed her by the neck carried her to a weeded lot between an abandoned house and garage and raped and strangled her. He took $300 from her purse after she was dead. Ten days later, the body of Cleaster Precious McNeil, 29, was found in an abandoned house just two miles from where Betty had been found. Remember Wanda Klein, the woman who was friends with Tanya Dunlap? Yeah. Well, she also knew Cleaster. Wow. Yeah. Small world. That's a lot of friends. Yeah. yeah. Small world and a devastating one for um, that circle of people friends. involved. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The people involved. Wanda later said, quote, Tanya, she jumped into things too quick. But Cleaster, she was kind of the hard type, bossy. She knew it all, end quote. But Precious was vulnerable because of her addiction to crack and because she did sex work. And I just watched a documentary about crack. Uh, maybe it was called crack, but it was about crack and how it devastated the black community. We've talked about this before, right. but it is such an addictive drug. Yeah. And the high is so short, but uh, so get amazing yeah. that you have to get more. And addiction is an is a it's a disease. Right. Um, and if. Uh, it's it's just really um, an unfortunate thing what ha- what what crack did to black communities yeah. in the nineties and um, some of these victims I think um, were uh, um, affected by that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Reporters and citizens in Gary were convinced that there was a serial killer on the loose, but authorities denied this, stating that they'd found nothing to connect the murders. Detectives actually were thinking along the lines of a serial killer, but due to pressure from city officials were unable to express their beliefs. City officials did not want to link the cases because they did not want to create widespread panic or further damage the already poor image of Gary, Indiana. Just for the reputation. Right. That's so Not, fucked yeah, up. Yeah, it's very fucked I can't up. Even, <laughs> I can't even, uh, I don't even, I can't even like think of an equivalent to make a joke about. It is just yeah. so r- wrong. Yeah. Um. So at some point, we don't have a, a date or a name for this one. Britt was nearly robbed by two men when he was having problems with the gears on his bicycle karma if you ask me but he was able to get away sometime later he saw one of the men alone he laid down his bike and went to the man and hit him they exchanged blows and when brit hit him on the chin the man went down brit then dragged the man into the brush and just sort of looked at him for a while when he came to and started swinging brit choked him to death He then stripped the man's clothes off. He later said that the thing always told him to leave his victims naked and that he knew that wild animals or the elements would, quote, eat up the bodies. So, uh, Brit, there, there, he was, he was doing drugs. Right. It's at some point we mentioned that in his early life. Yeah. No indication that he ever stopped. So I, I don't know. Part of me is thinking there's, there's got to be some drug activity involved with with his decision making and the idea of this it. 
No. Yeah. And, well, he's intellectually challenged, right? right? We established that. He also, it sounds like he had some mental health issues. So, um, but it could also be drugs. I, I don't know. Um, it was mentioned in his early life that he had some trouble with alcohol and drugs, but I didn't see anything in the later articles uh, talking about these crimes that he was doing drugs or um, drinking alcohol. It wasn't a big part of the story. So I don't really know. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. Um, plus, he deceived one of his victims, saying he had something to smoke and he had and nothing. And he had nothing. Yeah. <laughs> not even some cannabis yeah come on man come on get out of here get the fuck out of here don't play with stop playing with me brit um so now we're going to get into the investigation and arrest uh sarah paulson's august 22nd uh 1995 killing set off a wave of panic throughout portage for now remember portage is the white uh, suburb of right So for days, playgrounds were empty and parents kept their children close by. The death of a young white girl in Portage prompted lots of media and police attention. Meanwhile, the strangulation deaths of several black women and girls in Gary drew little attention. Not a surprise. Nope. The news is racist. <laughs> the new Man, that's we why told she's you. the OG at true crime and the best white lady in the game. Oh, I added a new white woman to my favorite list. Brene Brown. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Right. There you go. Look her up. <laughs> On September 14th, 1995, Britt was bumped by a train. He bounced off of the train and his leg was slightly injured. He was released from the hospital the next day and transferred to Refuge House, a shelter for the unhoused located near Gary's downtown. Reverend Clyde B. Smith ran the shelter. Y'all can't see my face, but just the idea of bouncing off a train. (laughs) I don't have a sound effect. Uh, is this yeah it's, there you go she did it uh it's just so um amusing to me plus this guy is such garbage yeah it's like ooh, pain for him you know uh ooh. uh so while uh staying in the shelter brit befriended reverend clyde smith smith's wife dolores and a cook he was described as quiet and something of a loner he spent his days there studying the bible and listening to gospel tapes and music. But that gospel music really does slap, though. Am I right? I mean, <laughs> what, I was just thinking he was reading the Bible, quote unquote. But I wonder if he was really reading it or if just he, he was just sitting there listening, listening to gospel, to gospel. With, his face, yeah. with the book open. open. Just, <laughs> look at all these words. But this this gospel song, though, this this Biko, whoa. Uh, <laughs> so eventually Britt told Reverend Smith and others that when he was hit by the train it actually had been a suicide attempt in the meantime the hardy security guard where brit had worked realized that the day that brit had been sent home he left a little before sarah paulson had been killed the security guard told the restaurant manager and the manager called the police police did a background check on brit discovered his rape conviction and then focused on him as their suspect Police asked Britt's sister for his Hardy's uniform, which was sent to an FBI lab in Washington. It's getting serious now. <laughs> there, a fabric examiner determined that the blue and green polyester fibers on the uniform were microscopically consistent with fibers taken from the girl's clothes and from beneath her fingernails. Now, this was the 90s. We did have DNA, but and uh, I think fiber science 
has been uh, debunked as junk science, but useful in pointing investigators into the right direction. Yeah, because they said that the fibers were consistent. They didn't say they mm-hmm. were exactly the same. Yeah. Aha! Yeah. Aha! case. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, on November yeah. 3rd, police arrested Britt and charged him with Paulson's murder. Reverend Smith and his wife visited Britt at the Porter County Jail. Quote, I wanted to know if he had done the things he was accused of, Smith said. I had to know. Unquote. Um, shout out to this pastor. Yeah. For really doing really doing the lord's work yeah um and uh it's just really interesting i don't know if you've ever had a close relationship with your pastor beth no i've never had a pastor (laughs) okay well in the black community the pastor is is deeply involved in family issues you know mental health is something that's not discussed uh, often in black communities and families uh, because people normally go talk to the pastor. Okay. Um, if you need something, um, you call the pastor. You need a job, a place to live. At least in my experience, call the church, call the pastor. Um, so-and-so needs something. So you call them and they just always answer their phone or always available with resources to really help um, people. And the church plays a significant role in black life and survival since um, black people were first brought here. And I just uh, wanted to point that out in the story when, when Brit trusted, trusted this reverend with his life, basically his life and his truth. Um, Even though there were dire, there were, you know, justified consequences consequences for him. Uh, I just think it's something maybe not everybody might not understand how, important that relationship is so. good to know there you have it this has been culture corner with wendy and beth <laughs> okay i asked him about the paulson child and he said yes pastor i did that and then he said reverend i got more to tell you before they left smith told Britt that they were not going to tell police about the confession he wanted Britt to do that himself we told him that if he wanted to continue his walk with Jesus uninterrupted, he had to confess to the proper authorities, Smith said. On November 7th, Britt told police he wanted to confess, but he would only do so if Smith was present. The reverend was contacted, and once there, Britt began confessing. During eight hours of questioning with detectives and his minister, Britt confessed to Sarah Paulson's death, as well as 10 other murders. Victim by victim, Britt gave details of the crimes. He did not know the names of all the victims, but he knew what they looked like and where he had killed them. Smith later said that Britt had a photographic memory for his crimes, which is remarkable. That's the only thing I'm jealous about. That's photographic memory. Not jealous about anything else, but that (laughs) photographic memory, man, I could really go places like that. And it reminds me of uh, Samuel Little who also was oh, yes. said to have a photographic memory for his victims. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yes, the I think it's evident too yeah. by those sketches. The drawings. And what, right. Yeah. The drawings and the amount of cases that have been solved as a result. Yeah. Close. Crazy. What is it, in the sixties, maybe seventies. Something who knows? like that. Yeah. yeah. Somebody should do a podcast about that guy. <laughs> Britt said he did most of the killing by surprising people from behind, and that was how he described the killing of Sarah Paulson. He said he was riding his bike, and he saw her and said hello. She told him he was looking for frogs. He laid his bike down and grabbed her and took her back into the woods. 
not appropriate, but here I go. Into the woods. Remember that? <laughs> the, the musical? Yes. Into the woods and over the hill. <laughs> I love that theme song uh, or that, that musical. Anyway, he told her, don't say anything. But this baby screamed. So he killed her. Smith recounted that Britt said only one of the victims seemed to sense that she was about to be attacked. Quote, he said that one lady was coming out of a gas station and he said hello to her and she got a worried look on her face and started backpedaling. He grabbed her by the throat and dragged her behind a garage, unquote. And I, I think this was Maxine Walker because that's kind of yeah. how her, her murder was described. Britt also confessed to killing a man, Smith said, though the circumstances surrounding that crime differed from the others. On November 8th, the day after their conversation with Britt, detectives went to a wooded area described by Britt and found the remains of Tanya Dunlap, whom Britt had raped and strangled. And on December 2nd, 1995, police found the decomposed body of Maxine Walker in a weeded area, as Britt had described. Three of the seven deaths Britt told police about had not previously been ruled homicide. One woman's body was too decomposed to determine a cause of death. Another's cause of death was pending, and the third was thought to have died of natural causes. In the case of one victim, who I think maybe was the male victim, I'm not really sure, police mm -hmm. had already charged another man with the murder and were holding him in jail. For God's fucking sakes! <laughs> um, well, you gotta close that case, man. Yeah. Put a stop to the put a stop to the paperwork. Paperwork matters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, Britt confessed to the murders of Arlinda Smith, Sarah Harrington, Nikita Moore, Debbie McHenry, Michelle Burns, Sarah Paulson, Betty Askew, Precious McNeil, Tanya Dunlap, and Maxine Walker, plus the male victim. If you recall, Debbie McHenry's family knew Eugene Britt when he was a child, and they were as surprised as anyone when it turned out that he was the murderer. They remembered him as being nice as a child. That really just fucks me up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they knew him. And we've talked about other cases where the killers have gone back to the crime or there's been a cookout after somebody dies. Oh, right. And the killer will go back and they'll fix him a plate. This this is a, this is similar to that. Yeah. This motherfucker grew up with these people and they trusted him, right? And knew him to be a good person. And they were wrong. Yeah. Just that idea of that being completely inaccurate in the worst way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. scary. Yeah. yeah. So you never know. Beth, <laughs> head on swivel. Uh, so now we're going to get into the trial. So Porter County officials originally charged Britt with the November 1995 murder of eight-year-old Sarah Paulson. In May of 1996, he pleaded guilty to the murder and two counts of criminal deviant behavior and was sentenced to life without parole plus 100 years. Sarah's parents wept and hugged as the sentence was read. It took five more years for Britt to be charged in the other deaths. On February 11th, 2000, Britt was charged with six counts of murder and murder in the perpetration of rape in the cases of six of the Gary women. The charges came after a four-year investigation that followed Britt's confession in November 1995. Diane Poulton, spokeswoman for the Lake County Prosecutor's Office, said basically he confessed to these murders and told them where the bodies were. So police went and found the bodies and had to do quite a bit of forensics. There wasn't a big hurry at this point because he is serving life in prison. 
On October 6, 2006, at the age of 48, Britt, who was already serving a life sentence, entered into a plea agreement with prosecutors in the other murders. As part of the agreement, Britt pleaded guilty but mentally ill to murder in the perpetration of rape in the deaths of Nikita Moore, Tanya Dunlap, and Maxine Walker and rape in the case of the 13-year-old Gary girl who had survived her attack. He also admitted to killing and raping three other women, Betty Askew, Michelle Burns, and Deborah McHenry. But charges in those deaths were dropped in the plea agreement, under which he waived his right to appeal. In his confession to police in Sarah Paulson's August 1995 murder, he admitted to a total of nine murders, but no charges were ever filed in two of the cases. I I wonder why they didn't charge him for those three murders. Right. If he confessed already and was already serving life in prison. Right. And he's taking the plea deal. Like, Mm -hmm. why? What's the big deal? (laughs) I I, I I, I only, you know, you mentioned paperwork and manpower. You know, there's maybe there's other cases to get to. And well, I'm sure the prosecutors were like, we want you to admit to all these. We want to charge you in all of these. And he was Mm -hmm. like, well, I'll admit to it, but I don't want charges, you know, his defense attorneys. But why? You know, you know, it's, weird I don't... thing about lawyers. I don't know. They, <laughs> it's like a win is a win. Yeah, they got into this little uh, tit for tat thing and like, well, we're not going to we're not we don't want charges on these ones. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Who cares I, anymore? You're, you're yeah, going like, to jail for the rest of your life. Who cares? You know, ex- ex- exactly. And I don't I, I don't imagine that he had anything more than a public defender yeah um and so you know maybe i i really just think it's the attorneys keeping yeah. score for themselves yeah. rather than for the overall yeah. of the, for the victims or even for the client like the uh, the attorney may have just wanted an opportunity to be like yeah i did that yeah maybe yeah. it's stupid yeah. though yeah it is a hundred percent you heard it here folks what's next Lake Superior Court Judge Salvador Vasquez, who imposed the sentence, had ruled that Britt was, quote, mentally retarded, unquote. And I'm sorry, but it's the legal terminology that was used at the time and uh, therefore ineligible for the death penalty. During his plea agreement hearing October 7, 2006, Britt's hands and feet were visibly shaking. He was in a wheelchair, uh, the result of a hip injury from when he had been by the train. <laughs> Doing. <laughs> Doing. Uh, and maybe it's funnier to me because this has happened to me, not with a train, but with a truck on a bike. And I hit the I hit the truck on my bike, little kid Wendy, Aww. and went thing, thing. <laughs> went Got airborne on into, your ass. Yeah. into the street. Yeah. And just like slid Aww. a little bit. <laughs> um and I I like went to the like I went to the hospital. I Remember thinking, oh, I'm going to be on the news. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm not going to have to go to school tomorrow. Uh, and all of that was not true. Uh, and so it's, it's just a funny, it's a funny picture Image, to be in my yeah. Because it was, yeah. So anyway, uh, he got hit by the train. Think, and he uh, said he regretted his crimes. Uh, he cried and called out to the courtroom, quote, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry, end quote, as prosecutors read out the details of the assaults. 
quote, I'm just sorry. I'm truly sorry for my sins, and I take full responsibility for my actions. Ain't nobody but myself. God knows I'm guilty. God knows I'm guilty, unquote. Britt then launched into a rambling 15-minute speech about how people in jail were playing games on him, messing with his food and punishing him. Uh yeah. Like you said earlier, my, my give, give a shit meter. My give a shit meter is so, <laughs> so low. It's, it's, it's clean out. It's on empty. Yeah. Yeah. Completely, <laughs> completely vacant of any sympathy for this individual. Um, and also, rapists and murderers, uh, people who hurt kids, don't fare well in prison. Right, right. So, uh, I don't know what this individual expected, but he deserves it. I mean, that's the least of his worries. Playing games with him and messing with his food? Woo! Sleep with one eye open, Britt. Because uh, he's still there. Yeah, he is. Uh, anyway, we'll get to that. At times, his voice rose to a shouting level. Quote, I don't listen to those evil voices when they talk to me all the time. End quote. He said, Judge Vasquez asked if Britt was all right. Bruh, are you okay? And called for medics who waited in the gallery until the two-hour proceeding was over. And on November 3rd, 2006, Britt was, which was also the day before his birthday. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> Happy oh my birthday, God. Eugene Britt. <laughs> look, at, look at God. Look at the Lord. Never would have made it without you. <laughs> I would have lost it all, which actually you deserve to do because you are a, no, you kill people. What do you expect? Okay. Anyway. (laughs) Anyway, November 3rd, 2006, Britt was sentenced to 245 years in prison for three of the killings and the rape of the 13 year old girl. But Vasquez said, quote, you deserve to be in prison for the rest of your life. You deserve to die in prison. Several people in the gallery responded with, amen. Ooh, I can only imagine yeah. people shouting. Sta- I mean, this I, I, I'm reading it and I feel the justice. Yeah. Uh, so he as as he was wheeled from the courtroom, uh, Britt shouted, <clears throat> God loves me, too. <laughs> 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 Which okay. is so unnecessary. <laughs> <Yeah>. okay. <laughs> Why? Why, God? <laughs> oh, yo, I just want y'all to know. God loves me, too. God loves me, too. I'm seeing him being wheeled out of the courtroom, I like, know. really fast. <laughs> too. Yeah. Too. <laughs> Same. So, so now... <laughs> Oh, this is the way it's supposed to be. I mean, podcast. Yeah. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> so now we, we are going to get into where are they now? What do we got, Beth? Well, this is a sh- really short one. Britt is currently housed in the Indiana State Prison. Still there. Yes. And as uh, just, just put him under the jail already. As uh, one, I mean, understandably, many of the or some of the family members of Brit's victims have battled addictions and mental illness in the aftermath of the losses yeah. of their loved ones. Um, so now we're going to get into our takeaways. Hit it, Beth. Well, he was abused as a child and he left home at 14. And that could not possibly have been an easy life. Um, and who knows what happened to him on the streets as a young teenager. He also seemed to have mental health issues and an intellectual disability. And, you know, we talked about possibly drug addiction. We don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it definitely sounds like he was someone who fell through the cracks. 
Yeah. And yeah. his murders were what criminologists call opportunity killings, where a uh-huh. victim's presence in a location more than age or race attracts a killer. Um, so, like, he didn't have a type. Like, some, some mm-hmm. murderers have a type, like, uh, you know, Ted Bundy liked women with brown hair parted in the middle. Like, he had a very specific type. This guy was an equal opportunity killer. He just chose his victims at random. Yeah. Speaking of equal, (laughs) it's equal opportunity, but not in a good way. No, no. You don't want this equal opportunity. (laughs) Uh -uh. (laughs) You could keep that equality to yourself. (laughs) And uh, the the murders were sexually motivated, uh, except for the male victim, as far as we know. Um, And I think that he, the murder was not initially what he wanted. The primary motivator, I think, was rape. Yes. Like for some serial killers, uh, they they really love the shit out of killing. But uh... yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! Murder! (laughs) Yeah. I'm gonna go out and murder today. See y'all when I get back. Yeah. <laughs> Put it on your Facebook status. Out murdering. BRB. <laughs> so um, I don't think this guy was one of those uh, serial killers. Although um, maybe he learned to like it later because it seemed like he enjoyed choking his victims out, letting them revive, and then choking them again, which is pretty fucked up. Um, and I'm guessing it gave him a sense of power and control. Um, which was what he was looking for with the rapes as well. So maybe he did get yeah. to like it. I don't know. He was arrested in 1978 for the rape. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. then, you know, he had to spend jail time. So I think after that, he was like, if they if they see me, they're going to die. Right. I'm never going back. Yep. Well, I agree with you. Um, he felt, he, I, I think um, the whole city, fell through the cracks right we see that with cities uh with that with high black populations um that are um victims of lack of um investment yeah Uh, right people people the 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 powers that be don't neglect really care because basically yeah thank you (laughs) god what would do without you (laughs) neglect um and i think that he was able to proceed with his activities um for a long time, not a long time, like we've seen, like the Grim Sleeper, his span was decades, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and he took a big old break in the middle. But this individual was, um, it, it wasn't until Sarah Paulson was killed that the efforts were put into ending this um, this spree. This, right. Uh, not spree, this, this set of uh, killings and crimes. Um, I, uh, wish we knew more about his upbringing. Yeah, definitely. I think it's important to ask, we know what, we know what, what the consequences were. He ended up killing and raping people, but what happened to him? We know that his father was abusive and he left home and he had intellectual disabilities and there was some substance use an abuse in the early part of his life. And I think that when a child is abused and witnesses abuse, that, that trauma, that trauma doesn't ever go away yeah, never without leaves. proper healing. Yeah. And that might've contributed to his need for power. Yeah. Hence the rapes and the attacks and um, the murder part. I do think I, for lack of a better way of putting this, because I'm me, it's like the um, 
I don't know, like a side of fries. Like, I'll take it, but I don't need it. Yeah, the icing on the cake or whatever. Yeah, yeah. icing on the cake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 what I'm trying to say. Right. Um, and I um was thinking of a saying when he uh, uh was talking about in his confession how he didn't want them to see him. He told them not to look at him. Right. Um, a saying I heard once, and I tried my darndest to find who said this where the fuck this came from i have no idea so let us know but essentially the quote is um if you shame a man he will cut out the eyes of the world so that no one can uh, see his shame any longer something like that i know i'm getting it wrong but again rape is about power he was um somebody who didn't have those things and um i think uh you've look for what you don't what you don't got yeah um i can't think of any other takes but the just the um you know the 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 victim count and the amount of people affected by all by these um what is it 11 murders and right. um, however many rapes all the um, family members all, and yeah all the family members and, and survivors yeah. yeah so that one's uh that one gets to me yeah especially thinking of a young young girl sarah paulson yeah so. yeah and and part of it was uh, i mean the response of course was because she's white in a white town but also she was only eight years old, so she was. Yeah. She was a baby. Yeah. Um. Also, uh, as I said, uh, Gary was a community that suffered from segregation, disinvestment, neglect, and was a rough place to live in the '90s. And Brit being there did not help. Yeah. <laughs> Three AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing four one one, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. Um, so, uh, this case, uh, these tips are nothing but generic. Um, but the part about the little kid being, uh, hurt just really, uh, everybody and all the victims, I feel for all the victims. Um, but, um, just made me think because I have small kids. Um, so this one's an oldie but goodie. Uh, use the buddy system. And lastly, another oldie but goodie is Beth's famous mantra. <laughs> Repeat after me. I will fucking kill you. Just say that over and over again in your head. Really It'll change angrily. your whole mind. Yeah. Woo! Oh, okay, so I shouldn't smile when I say it. <laughs> no. <Sometimes> I... <laughs> well, unless it's like an angry smile. You know, you know those okay. kind of smiles. Oh, like the mm. Joker. Yeah, you know that. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, uh, but it, it uh, you know, you change your mindset, you change, you change everything else on the outside. Right. So you won't look like a victim. Yeah. Because um, my understanding from people who have confessed to these kinds of crimes is they're looking for somebody who, who looks, looks vulnerable. Like a victim. Like an, yeah, vulnerable. An easy, like an easy target. Yeah. Somebody who's not going to yeah. fight back. Yes. Uh, also, not a bad idea to carry around something uh, that you can use to defend yourself. I've got my cell phone with like safety apps, but my phone has a password. And if I'm in the midst of an attack, <laughs> I can't be like, excuse me. I, me I need just to put, put my password in Can here. I put my password in? Yeah. So uh, so that's not going to help me. So carry carry something with you that uh, like mace, a, a knife, your keys, or learn how to use these hands with a simple YouTube video wow. um, in the event that you are apprehended or come into physical contact with somebody who attacks you if you're not able to flee. Um, some I've, I found one source that said, try to talk your way out of it um, and maneuvering towards escape. If that doesn't work, surrender, hoping uh, for the predator's mercy. That is a shitty tip. Don't do that. Uh, well, I guess do it if that's what the experts say. Um, and uh, But, oh, uh, here's... Read further, Wendy. Uh, uh, surrender and then hope that you... You can trick the perp into um, a w opening a window of opportunity for you to suddenly escape uh, and then fight like hell if you can. Um, and uh, uh, it's good to consider these scenarios. I think that's why people love true crime, as Beth said. But consider these scenarios and play them in your head. Like, I, what would I do? If this if there happened, was a zombie yeah. apocalypse. Yeah. If this happened. If, uh, you know, yeah. If that so, happened, what would I do? Yeah. yeah. Prepare, yeah. prepare yourself mentally. Yeah. Mentally. So um, now we are going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any true crime goodies or content by BIPOC, LGBTQ, or any other marginalized folks. I wanted to shout out the Doodler podcast i know you've already yep. listened to every single episode <laughs> but it's good right it is it's real good yeah i haven't gotten to the end but i know that from what i know it's about a serial killer who's active in san francisco during san francisco's heyday as far as the lgb community goes mm -hmm. it was a a safe a safe place for um lgbtq people and at the time they didn't use um that language but you know what i'm saying yeah. and it was fun but then it also became very scary because of this serial killer drawing pictures of people and killing them <laughs> and uh the the case is uh being re i don't know if it's officially reopened but the host is trying to find this serial killer right. who may right. still be out there so there's in uh, there's a phone number and a website i think you can go to oh wow um that they should they shout out on the show. It sounds like there's still an effort to get to the bottom of right. this. And uh, the Doodler podcast is a good one. Also, Disrupt and Dismantle on BET is a television program hosted by Soledad O'Brien, a journalist who is essentially uh, using her platform as the one of the dopest journalists around and BET to uh, figure out how did we get here? How did all this white supremacist bullshit get to the point where it is now? And what the fuck can we do to dismantle it? That so sounds great. Yeah, it's really yeah. good. So I just wanted to um, sh shout out a true crime goodie that I stumbled across on Discovery Plus. Well, first of all, let me shout out Discovery Plus. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> Wait a minute. Why am I using my 
lips <laughs> when I, I have the air horns right here. <laughs> Okay. So Discovery Plus has all the murder shows and it has uh, other shows too, like, uh, I don't know, uh, stuff p- other people like. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, those those home improvement shows and stuff like that. But it also oh. has the own network. Woo! Yeah. Discovery Plus. Yeah. I'm looking into how I can get it now. <laughs> okay. Thank you. You're welcome. So this, this show that I stumbled across on Discovery Plus is called where murder lies and Mm. it's stories about murders that are cover-ups for lies and so they're they're uh pretty pretty fascinating like all the the ins and outs and twists and turns um in the stories i i found it true it's true story yeah yeah true crime oh yep hell yeah Yeah. i'm all over this (laughs) I think there are like six or seven episodes right now, and at least two of them are about people of color. So, all right, I'm on it. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it for today. Beth, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's there's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right. Well, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. (sighs) 
I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.